22 years old when I came to prison. I was 30 years old when I went to prison. I was at the age of 19. I had just turned 19. Hi, I'm Chris and I help life-sentenced men transition from institutionalized prison life back into society. Every one of our men has already served 25 to 45 years in prison. I serve on the board of the Corrections Transition Program at Everglades Correctional Institution in Miami, Florida. I teach these men life skills and how to speak, listen, and think, so when they get paroled, they become assets of their communities rather than liabilities of the state. Welcome to Men Going Home. I'm Chris Wolf, and we've got another great show for you today because we are the only show that brings you access to a segment of society very few people know anything about, men who have spent more than 30, 35, and even 40 years in prison. We'll talk to them about their crimes, their life in prison, and what their transition back into the free world was like after all those years. However, before we introduce today's special guest, please welcome my good friend and co-host of this show, Andy Korge. Andy, welcome. Thank you, Chris. Good afternoon. Looking forward. We had a nice conversation with Robert here before the filming of this program. Looking forward to hearing his story and talk a little bit about Edward Dewitt. That was one heck of a, a show and... A lot of recurring themes came about during that program. Um, drug addiction. Drug addiction uh, really was a driving force in, in his criminal activity. It, it and completely dominated his life, destroyed his career in the Coast Guard, and then ended, you know, put him in prison. Exactly. And, and, and then, of course, you know, violence in prison. I mean, the story that he told regarding the decapitation that he witnessed on his second day in prison was was really almost unbelievable and it, and and it's a recurring theme we hear about the violence in prison we hear about the, uh, how these a lot of these guys are armed in prison and, and and he acted as if witnessing that decapitation was no big deal but then he said he went back to his cell and he was shaking like a leaf like a leaf like anyone would because be because he said you're not supposed to show it you're not supposed to show it you're not supposed to show it but he said he was scared yeah he he went through a range of emotions he was I mean, he was a great guest, really enjoyed talking to him. And, you know, as a sidebar, I don't know if you remember, but he talked about his time in school and how one teacher in school really engaged him to the point where he would skip his whole senior year of high school, except for that one class he kept right. coming back to every day, right. which was shows you the power of a great teacher. He said he skipped skipping school just to attend that one class. <laughs> exactly, exactly. All right, let's get this show on the road. We've got a great show lined up for you today, so let's introduce today's special guest. Robert Scarborough was only 20 years old when he was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison in 1981. He has survived over 38 years of Florida's most violent prisons. Robert was paroled on July 9th of 2019, and he is here today to tell his true story of alcohol and drug addiction, crime, prison, and his transition back to society. Please welcome today's special guest, Robert Scarborough. Robert, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Andy, for inviting me here today to uh, share my story and tell you who the man I used to be and who the man I am today. Well, now, you, you traveled down from Tampa early this morning, correct? Because after this interview, you're headed to Everglades Correctional Institution, correct? Yes, sir. I actually live in Pasco County right now, and I traveled an hour to get to uh, Hillsboro 
to be able to pick up some other men to bring down here as well because we're going into the Everglades institution to bring our success back to the men that's in the prison system, the men going home on the CTP program. That's part of your parole plan, correct? You're supposed to come down periodically and talk to the men? As often as possible, as often as we can. And sometimes our work and our job won't allow it in that we we would like to be more connected because these are guys that we grew up with and that we spent, you know, uh, 10, 20, 15 years together with at other institutions. And we encourage them to show them, you know, our success and how good society is and, and to actually apply the principles that they learn and they can be successful as well out there right. in society. Robert, you have a very, you know, interesting uh, life. You had a very normal childhood. When you and I spoke the other day, you had a very normal childhood. But as over the past year, Andy and I speak to a lot of adolescents and young men who went to prison, and there tends to be four common denominators. People hanging around the wrong group of people growing up, using alcohol and drugs at very young ages, uh, succumbing to peer pressure and just making flat out bad choices and bad decisions. You actually had one more level of very little education. You were basically passed through school as a youngster, and then you were expelled in eighth grade, correct? Yes, sir. Why were you expelled in eighth grade? Um, I was expelled because of misbehavior and never really going to school, not taking an interest and applying myself. Plus, through my alcohol and drug addiction, um, I didn't want to be in school. I was embarrassed that I couldn't read and write. So, you know, to call unto me as a student, Robert, please stand up and would you read paragraph what and what uh, on this page? And I couldn't do that because I never really learned the voc- um, how to pronounce words. But, but you got through all the way to eighth grade without anyone ever saying, well, Robert can't read. Well, back then, back then, they basically, you know, your attendance like, uh, through elementary school and stuff. There wasn't all them tests that you really had to take or anything. Right. But then when I got into seventh grade, um, I'd done like 45 days of seventh grade, and my mom found out that I was skipping school through the uh, the principal that had actually sent her the letter, and, and I didn't get it through the mail. And then she begged him at, towards the last week to let me come in and take the test and uh, see if I could be passed to the next grade. And he thought his the uh, dean was Mr. Bashaw. And he says, he hasn't been 45 days in school, and there's no way that he can right. sit there and take a test and pass. So she said, well, just give him the opportunity. So I went into the school. I was given the opportunity. They set me in a library, and through my girlfriend and all her girlfriends, they actually took all my tests for me. I just gave them there, and I just sat back, and I let them take the test. But, but, and then but, I but shame it. on a school district. I mean, you couldn't read or write. Right. right. So, so for grade. six or seven grades, they passed you along, they, and you couldn't read or write, and they passed you through anyway. Yes, sir. So now you're 14. You're expelled. I believe so, somebody gave your girlfriend a black eye, and you beat this guy up pretty bad uh, when you were 14. Yes, sir. So you were expelled from public school at 14, and you were working part-time at Publix because your parents worked at Publix, and then you got a full-time job working construction. construction. So your parents were okay with you not going to school at such a young age? Well, it was like this. They they realized that they couldn't make me go to school. 
because, I mean, they couldn't sit there in the school with me. They could take me to school or they could put me on a bus and I could ride the bus to the school or I could arrive. They could take me to the school when I arrived, but I just would leave. And so that my dad, he was like, okay, he says, since you want to be a man and you want to work, he says, you're going to work. I'm going to take you to work every day, but you, now you're going to pay bills. So what right. you make, you're going to take the responsibility and you're going to give me so much. And, and I can't recall how much it was, but it was very little at the time to show me some kind of responsibility mm -hmm. because I wanted to be a man. And, and, and I guess that's somewhat way he was raised and thought that he was helping me out or trying to discourage me maybe, but I kept on working and I applied myself and I learned different trades. And then I wanted to move up within the status of making more money. Right. But at a very young age, before we get into your, your working full time, because using drugs, you became addicted to drugs was a big part of your life at 13 you were already smoking marijuana and drinking alcohol. And at 14, you were doing LSD, heroin, cocaine, quaaludes, mushrooms. Yes, had, sir. Did your family drink a lot? Did you see it growing up? Well, my, my dad always drank. And um, I was raised by a stepfather, which to me, he's a great man. And, um, but, you know, he drank. And when I look at it as being uh younger or look back in my past you know i'm a little kid and he says oh go get me a beer and i get a beer and he opens it up and he drinks a little bit and i get the beer from him and i drink a little bit of it give it back to him you know it's something that may be harmless that parents or someone doesn't really think what's a long-term effect on this but then to come out and find out that what was my problem? Because that was a gateway. That was the start. And then wanting to emulate, uh, you know, take on what my dad t does. You know, I want to be a man. He's a man. I want to drink, you know. And then I started uh, doing drugs because I started hanging out with uh, people that drank all the time. And then they were doing drugs. And so but it was like the same age, same age as you well, older, older, older kids that were in school, like the high school, a lot of my skipping. Now I would leave the, the, um, like junior high, I'd leave junior high school and go to the high school and hang out right. with the high school kids that, that, uh, skip school. And that was drinking in back of the stores and smoking their pot and stuff. And I was younger, but now, you know? now Robert, you, you know, you were using heavy drugs at a very young age. Yes, sir. And what you mentioned to me was that your parents both worked at Publix, and they worked a lot. Yes, sir. And I believe in your early years, you felt that you were sort of missing love and nurturing from your parents. Do you think that it was the peer pressure of being accepted, accepted by your friends? I mean, um, you, you were, why were you using such heavy drugs at such a young age? I think, I think when I look back into the calls of you know, experimental. I like the euphoric feelings of it. I don't really think it was the peer pressure. It it was okay. Well, we're doing it together. It's sociable. You know, in a in was, a was an acceptance, acceptance of your friends of my friends. Okay, being around and and there was all different kind of people. You know, hippies, bikers, and all this other uh, using the drugs in the rim I was in. So, um. One thing I wanted to see experimentally, what this effect had. 
But what you, would this have an effect on me? How was this? You know, because I, I would hear different things like downers, uppers, psychotrophic. I mean, I could travel and go places and never leave this seat. You but know? now you considered yourself addicted to drugs at 16, correct? Uh, yes, sir. Any one drug in particular or just anything that would get you high? No, I, I didn't have a drug in choice. I think it was just uh, what I could get my hands on at the time. And you were what 16. I could and you were 16. Now you're working. You're not working part time at Publix. You're full time construction, correct? Yes, sir. Now, you're considering yourself a drug addict, and you started dealing drugs just to support your own habit. Uh, it started. Well, I was selling drugs. You know, it started really minor. You know, like I'd get a pound of pot cheap, and I sell it to kids at school that I knew that would uh, get high. And then I would meet other people like in bars and stuff, going into bars, shooting pool and stuff. And I'd meet businessmen that want to go out on the street and buy it. So mm -hmm. I could get a greater value from them than I would a teenager. And then it just escalated from there. The, the money, um, being cheap and charging more, and making more money. I was actually making more money just on the side selling pot than I was actually working for $4 an hour all day long out and, in the hot and, sun. And that was just kind of feeding your habit, basically? And just feeding my habit, drinking. And I, I, I would, uh, my profit went into buying more pot or drugs, right. whatever I was selling, and doing it and then drinking on top of it and so, never making headway for buying a car or anything april 1977 you're 16 your girlfriend's 15 and she's expecting your child and you yes, get sir. married what was that like to be married with a child at such a young age well actually it was a it was a great feeling to take on the responsibility as being a man you know um when when uh Actually, I was getting high one night, and I had my uh, head in her lap, and I go, oh, I hear something. What is that? And I was kidding around with her, like, in a, in a way, but she got offended. Oh. And then I go, I go, what's the matter? And then come down to the bottom line is that she was pregnant, and she told me, she said, well, I missed my cycle. And I said, okay, well, let's go see you know, I'd take her to the free health clinic. Well, I couldn't do it because I was underage. I didn't have no car or nothing. You know, I wasn't old enough to have a car at the time. So I got with her brother, and we talked about it. But weeks would go by, and a, and we went down to the free health clinic, finally got her down there, and she was four and a half months pregnant. Mm. And which she couldn't have an abortion even if she wanted to. And thank God that she couldn't because I wouldn't have wanted her to to start with. I wanted to take responsibility and be a man about it. So I went home and I told my dad, you know, my stepfather, which I consider as my dad. Correct. Right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, refer to him as my father. Um, I told him, and when I told him, I said, Dad, I said, I don't know how to say this, but I just need to say it. I said, Carol's pregnant. And he goes, oh, I know. And I'm like, what? You know, how he do you know? He knew already? And he, no, he says that we were inseparable oh. since we were younger, you know, like three or four years before that. So it wouldn't surprise him. 
It was inevitable. You know, yeah, it was inevitable. So when was your daughter born? Uh, she was born August 4th, 1977. And her, we fir- got, and her we first got name is Nicole? April. Nicole? Yes, sir. April. She was born Nicole. in 77. Yes, sir. So she's 44 years old today. She's 44 today. And you, and you actually, the good news is you have a very good relationship with her. Correct? I do have a good relationship over the years, and uh, I'm very thankful for that. Um, okay. I never wanted to, um, you know, what happened for me to go to prison and stuff end up in prison when she was three she she just turned four and um i try to stay in contact with her as much as i could i wrote her letters when she was younger and um i was able to see her through her grandparents on her mother's side because i wrote them a letter and i said look i said i was i was separated from my real father at a young age and I don't ever want to be separated from her. I know it's not right what I've done and that I'm in prison and that I really don't have a right to see her, but I don't want her to grow up not knowing her father. Did they bring her to you? No, they would let one of my family members, when they come visit me, yeah. bring her up okay. periodically. Okay. They, would, they said they would take responsibility because when I got divorced in uh, 1982, I didn't have the parental right to see her if her mother said that it wasn't a good environment to bring her into. And she was and she and she was raised by those grandparents? Oh no, she was raised by, by her, her mother. mother. Okay. In a, and the, in and the mother passed away in 2019 heart attack. Yeah, r- but right she was after already in her stroke 40s. heart attack yeah. right after they they found her. Now hold on a second. 1978. You're 18 years old. You have a 1-year-old daughter and Everybody back then, I remember, was going to Houston, right? Everybody was, oh, everybody going, was going to Houston. And you were down in Houston. You're laying pipe. Uh, two years later, you're 20 years old. You're hanging iron, doing construction. Yes, you're making $11 an hour. Yes, sir. Now, your wife tells you, you said, in your words, your wife was fixing to leave you. And she said she was having weeks. an affair. She, yes. And you, you gave her an ultimatum. What happened? Well, um, she told me one night, it was, uh, it was a Friday night, that she told me she was fixing to leave me, and I couldn't believe it. It was like devastating to me. Mm-hmm. And um, between working, being an alcoholic, drug addict, go getting drugs, I can see, looking back, that I wasn't really there. You know, I I was there at nighttime, maybe a certain time of night, to the morning when I got up and worked and everything. But I was a mess. My life was a mess, and it wasn't what she wanted. And um. So I woke up next morning, Saturday morning. I went to the company. I was working for BNC and Iron Erector out of Houston, Texas. And I told Jake, that was uh, the manager over there, I said, look, I have family problems. I need to go to Florida, and I would like my second check, the one they withheld. Right. And so I got it. He gave it to me, and he said, hey, take care of your business. Whenever you get done, come back. We'll hire you. Right, but you you told your wife, that's it. We're leaving Texas. I'm leaving. I'm leaving. Your, your, I went back to the we're, house. We're leaving, and mm-hmm. she decided whatever relationship she was having, the heck with it. She yeah. jumped in the car, and you, got, you guys all came to, to Florida. Yeah, I, I went back to the house and took my daughter and put her in the truck right. in the car seat, and she said, what are you doing? I said, I'm going to Florida. You got five minutes. Get what you want. Throw it in there. I'll take you back because I wanted my daughter close to her grandparents in right. case anything happened. So you make it back to Florida. You get a, another construction job very quickly. Yep. But, as soon as I but came you're back. still addicted to drugs and you're still dealing drugs. Same person. 
And, you know, so, so you know, you're right back in the same cycle. Now, just then in Denver State. The beginning of the end, January 25th, 1981. Yes, sir. Actually, it was Super Bowl Sunday, Super Bowl 15. I, I, I quizzed Andy earlier to see if he knew he was playing. He got the, I got uh, the Raiders. He right. got the Raiders correct. He just didn't know it was the Philadelphia Eagles, okay. and the Raiders won 27 10. Now, some, you're a guy that you know, just some guy, he tells you, because he knows you're dealing drugs, and he says, I know where you can make some money tonight. Talk right. about that. So uh, we were sitting there waiting for the game, been doing drugs and uh, drinking and everything. And he goes, yeah, I know where you can make some quick cash tonight, some money. And he says, all you have to do is go pick up this girl and, and take her and some Quaaludes to, into Hillsboro. Now, now, hold one second. Just so people... You know, Quaaludes were back when, in 1981. They were big back in 81. But it's really just a pill that almost makes you drunk, right? Right, right. Well, it's a downer. It's a downer. It, it's a downer. And if you drink alcohol with it, it even enhances that downer. Okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. Okay. How many um, pi- how many pills are you talking about? Oh, I'm talking about thousands of them. Okay. You know, a few thousand pills. Okay. This was the delivery? A few yeah. thousand? Uh-huh. Okay. And, and so, um, turn around and... Um, he takes me to a, a bar that I'm supposed to pick her up. I talk to her and everything, and then, I, okay, I'm supposed to pick her up. So I go into the bar, but I go in early, right? And she's sitting there, and I said, hey, you ready to go? And when she got up and she was walking out, she walked over to the bar, and she picked up the telephone. And I had just walked out the door, and I turned around because I thought she was going to come out the door behind me. Right. And I seen her on the telephone, and I like, why are you on the telephone? Right, there's something wrong. She's gonna set you up. Is that's that's what I felt. Paranoia kicked in. Now, set, hold, set hold on one second. With the, with the law. With with the law. Now, how much money were you gonna make on this by driving her over there? Oh, I was gonna make like five hundred bucks. Five hundred. And, and did you and even know then, this lady? I didn't even know her. Never seen her before. Okay, so you just knew her first name. You didn't even know her last name. Yeah. Well, I didn't even know her name. Okay. I, I found out her name okay. after the incident because so, it was on my uh, okay. police report. So she picks up the phone when you walk in here. You're like, hey, what's going on here? But you don't say anything to her, but you guys are in the truck and you drive off. Right. And, you, and you're thinking, okay, because right. now, now you, got, you, you, got a sh- you got a shotgun in the car, correct? I got it in the truck. All so right. I pull over at gas station and I give her some money and I said, hey, go in there and get some gas. Go in there and get a, a quarter miller. And when she went in, I pulled the shotgun out from behind the seat off to the side, you know, where the quarter panel is on the side of the truck. Right. They got a little place there for a tire iron and your jack and stuff. Mm-hmm. So I pulled it out from there, loaded it, put it on my body. Because it was a sawed-off shotgun, so it was... It was it, right. Right. It, it could was sawed-off, small, 12-gauge, uh, double-barrel okay. shotgun. And you carried this because you were a drug dealer? Well, yeah, for my protection. Okay. And, and that's what I got it for. Okay. But that's what may, makes the case even worse a pre, as a premeditated because when you buy illegal weapon, you don't have a firearm. I mean, what's, what's the use of having it? But in the circle that you're in and the things that you're doing and within that lifestyle, I mean, sure, you plan to use it if you ever have to, to protect yourself. So now you arrive. All right, so she gets back in the car with your quarter miller beer and gas you're you're loaded up you got a the shotgun loaded it's in your jacket 
you arrived to the place of delivery of the quaaludes. What time? Right. Of, what time of the morning was this? Uh, it must have been like two o'clock in the morning. Okay. Somewhere right. around there. It was like it was like supposed to be midnight, but the time that I pulled over, got gas, and drove over there and stuff, it, it had to be somewhere around two. All one, right. One one thirty, two o'clock. Now. Like that. I, I've known you for a number of years now, seven or eight years, and I know you're very concerned uh, about respect for the victim's family. Yes, sir. Yeah. So you pull up to where you're supposed to deliver these quaaludes. You get out of the truck on the driver's side. You, you've got the sawed-off shotgun in your hand at this point. And when I get out of the truck, I had took it from up under my jacket and walked around the truck. Okay. So did you, was there a reason you took it out of the jacket? Well, yeah, to have it in my hand in case I needed it. Okay. And then you came around to the side where she was, and what happened? Uh, well, the gun ended up going off. And when the gun went off, it was like boom, boom. And then I heard... Um, boom, boom, because it was a double-barrel double shotgun. Double-barrel shotgun. And then what happened? And I heard, I heard a gasp. And it was like... It happened so fast, um, Chris, that when... When it went off, there's big flames. My hand kicked up, you know, because I wasn't really. It wasn't something that was planned. It was a. It was unexpected. I wasn't expecting for the gun to go off like that. Right. And the recoil on it and everything. And then I'm scared. And it was um, dark. It was dark. And I had never seen her. Did you know for sure that she was hit? I I only assumed because of the gasp. Because okay. I heard this gasp and it, and it haunted me for for a long time. So you were scared and you just drove off. And I drove off. So you didn't never never touched the body, never walked over by it. What it, I mean, what happened is I never even seen it. So I don't know how it was actually hit or hurt, but I know it was I mean, in my heart. You know when you get this feeling, right. and you know. Something devastating just happened. You were, were you were you drunk? Were you I was high? I always stayed drunk and high. I mean, so at the time you lifestyle. were at the time you were under the influence? Under the influence. Of alcohol and alcohol drugs? Alcohol and drugs. So you just assumed she was gone. Uh, yes. And you drove off. Because uh, because uh, shooting the gun, practicing with it, and you knowing what kind of pattern something like that is is firing. And, and by the barrel being shooter, it's a wider range to right. start with. You have, you, have you ever thought, I mean, how did this gun go off? Because you say, well, it just went off. I mean, a gun just doesn't go off by itself, right? Yeah, yeah it doesn't. And it, and I don't know, uh, having it in my hand, picking it up, pulling it up, it, it's something that I don't really understand and know. But I know as a, a human being what it feels like afterwards realizing that you just killed another human being and it's different from going hunting it, you know when you when you deer hunt or you boar hunt or shoot squirrels I, I was in the archery for many years and I used to shoot uh, squirrels out of the tree with my bow but it was it mm -hmm. was I was always taught you never kill anything you can't eat don't shoot anything you can't eat that's the way I was raised from a little kid from a, a father yeah. When was this young lady found? Uh, I, I guess it was the same night because um, I was arrested like the next day or the day after. I th yeah, I think but, I read two. I read two days later you were arrested on January twenty seventh of nineteen seventy seven, and the and the the killing 
happened on the 25th. How did the arrest go down? What happened? Um, I, I was driving down the road. Did they know to look for you? And I, I assume they did because I was driving down the road and there was two kids that was walking down US 19 and I knew one of them's sister. So I pulled over and I said, hey, Del, where are you going? He said he was, him and his friend was going to his sister's house. And I go, well, I'll take you to our house. And so they got in back of the truck. And I was driving down the road, and I stopped at a red light. And I looked up, and there was a sheriff behind me. And then I'm like, okay, I'm in a state shift. You know, take it real easy when you, when you uh, release the clutch. Don't do nothing crazy or anything. And when I went up under the red light, his lights came on. And then I thought, well, there's only one place to pull over, and that's this bank over here on my right-hand side, Barnett Bank. And so um, when I turned down into the bank parking lot, he had shot by me. And I thought, well, he just wanted me to pull over so he could get around me. Right. And then when I went around the bank, they had cars lined up, and their lights come on, and oh. shotguns and everything. So they knew right exactly where I was at. Now, they took you, when they apprehended you, they took you to the house where you were living because you were currently separated from your wife, correct? Right. So why did they take you back to the house? Well, first first I went to the county jail. And when I was arrested, the uh, Newport Ritchie Sheriff's Department, they took me there. And then they had the homicide cops from Hillsborough County there. And the homicide cops had made a, a, made a statement, and they said, look— <clears throat> This was supposed to be a simple drug bust, and it turned into a homicide. How did that happen? And they said, well, it's like a 15-minute window period, and we couldn't find where they were at for 15 minutes. He got there too early before we got there. Wait, wait, wait. wait, 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 Hold on. Hold hold on a second. Go ahead. So it was supposed to be a drug bust, so she was an informant for the police? Or the guy who told you, do you want to make some money? Okay. Or the guy that set up the deal. So so it was a setup in terms of, but why you? I mean, it's not like you're a big drug deal. No, why would, why no. would they? I, I don't know. I don't know what the big picture is. But Robert, Robert we usually find with everybody Andy and I interview, somebody sets somebody else up to, to, to lessen the sentence they have because right, they've right. been apprehended or arrested. Right. But you don't know if that happened. But I, I don't actually know. Years later, I heard about, because, uh, see, I never went to trial or court. So all that wasn't really disclosed to me, you know. So what what happened is that years later that I heard, oh, this person made a deposition against you, or this person made a deposition against you. And all I can really do is piece what other people have told me and not true facts that was brought out into the court. Because I went into the uh, judge's chamber like in July, and that would have been like six months after being in there. And I asked my parole officer that, I mean, uh, my um, lawyer, I asked him, I said, can I go into the judge and just go ahead and plead no low contending and take whatever he wants because I deserve to be in prison. But hold on one second. Before you get to the no contest, here's a question. You're at Hillsborough County Jail for six months. You, you, you had a, a court-appointed lawyer or a private lawyer? No, I had a court-appointed I had a, a private lawyer that my parents had gotten me. And there was no way to say, hey, look, this gun just went off accidentally? Because the, the way it was is that 
you have a, a illegal weapon to start with. Right. Right. A sawed-off shotgun. And, and why do a sawed-off shotgun that that's illegal? Strike you don't one. have a permit. You cut it off. It, that's automatically federal time. Okay. And then they say that because you bought the gun and you and you have fixed it like that, it was premeditated because you plan to use it to do bodily harm to protect it. Even right. if it's protect yourself, you planned ahead of time before the weapon was ever used. All it's right. not for that particular right. person. It's just for any incident. And from the day of the crime until she, your, your ex-wife died in 2019, you never spoke to her or saw her again, correct? No, I seen her when I first went to prison, but it was shortly after that we ended up getting the divorce. 1982. 1982. I was sentenced in uh, 1981, went to Sumner County, and then I seen her a few times. She brought my daughter up. Okay. And then um, that was the last that time. That was it. She she had another okay. relationship going. And I understood that um, she needed to move on with her life. Right. I got a life sentence with a mandatory quarter. I'm never getting out of prison. Mandatory quarter is 25 years 25 minimum. 25 years minimum. So July of 81, you're in jail for six months. You decide to plead no lo no contende, which is what? No contest? No contest. What does that mean? Uh I just gave the discretion up to the judge to sentence me to prison. Uh, and he says, do you understand that I can take that plea as a guilty plea? And I said, yes, sir. And he said, by what the state attorney evidence against you and the autopsy report, he says, I have the power to sentence you to prison for life with a minimum of 25 years after your 25th year, you're eligible for parole. Do you understand that? I said, yes, sir. He said, you still wanted to enter your plea. And I said, yes, sir. He says, I will take that as a guilty plea and find you guilty of first-degree murder and sentence you to a minimum of 25 years to life before you're eligible for parole. And you did that because you felt you deserved I had, that. I deserved it. Yes, and sir. when he said that, My, what went through your mind? When, when, when he said that and I pleaded, it was like the it it was i had um to take responsibility i had to you know and i wasn't going to sit there and put my family through and have this lawyer try to try to say hey uh, uh, let's go to trial let's do this let's do that whatever and just suck money out of them i had too much respect for them you were guilty and, and you felt I you deserved guilty. it that's and simple, i deserved right? it and i told my mother and my mother said she didn't want me to go do it. She didn't want me to plead. She wanted me to go to trial. She wanted to try to help me. And that's a loving mother, you know. But on on the same extent, when I did, she screamed. And it was one of the worst screams, I mean, that I ever heard. It was 38 I mean, it years was ago, so you've much. never forgotten it. Yeah. So off to prison at age 20. 1980, I guess, 81, off to prison. What was that like? You're in real prison. Well, when I, um, when, when they took me off, it was, it was like a couple weeks later, they put me in a van in uh, hand sh handcuffs and waist chains and shackles and put me in a van and took me to Lake Butler. And when they took me to Lake Butler, it was like, this is it. You know, this is my life. Yeah. And I'm going to, you know, die in prison. So you, you felt like you would never get out? Never get out. 
No, I all, you know, over the years, I try to tell my family, it's okay. You know, um, I'm going to make it. I'm going to be okay. You know, don't worry about me. I, I have to do 25 years. You know? That's got to be an unbelievable feeling that nobody can ever understand. 25 years until you're even eligible for parole. Right. And you did 38. I done 38 and a half, 38 in 10 months. So you went to Sumter as a youthful offender because you're only 20, and you said it was very racial back then. It, Talk it about was, that. It was very racial. Uh, it was segregated in, into the uh, chow when we went into the chow. Blacks ate on one side, whites ate on the other side. Um, I had found out by standing in line, I was there only a couple of days, and the line to into the chow, I'm standing in line, and it's real long. And I'm going, why is everybody walking in this door here? They're just going straight in. And I, and, and I wasn't raised as the white, black, segregated, and stuff like this, right? And I go into the short side. I go in the door, everybody going in, and I see, well, I go right in there, get my tray, and I sit down at a table by myself, and I'm eating. And a guy comes up, and he, big black guy, and he comes up and he goes, hey, how you doing? I said, I'm doing all right. And he goes, do you know where you at? And I said, yeah, I'm in Chow eating. Why? Apparently not. <laughs> and he goes, uh, look around you. And I turned my head, and I looked around, and I go, okay. I said, so what? And he goes, you see any white people here? And I looked back around. I said, no. Well, matter of fact, I don't. And he goes, that's because y'all eat on the other side. But it's not like that and today in prison, is it? It's not like that no, today. No, no, no. Time has changed. And okay. it's a it's a different um, generation. 1982. You go to Florida State Prison for 90 days on this time, uh -huh. but you said that you said there were stabbings and killings every day. Talk about that. Yeah, uh, Florida State Prison was very violent, and there was always fights. There was, there was always stabbings. The doors, the doors there. You're in inside a prison, and they have a hallway that's really long, and all your wings fall fall off from it. So. All throughout the day, periodically, you'll hear the door slam, officers running to one location to another because of a fight, a stabbing, or a killing, you know. And it's just, it's, it's like living on the edge of every moment, waiting to, waiting to hear the door slam or waiting for the doors to open and officers just rush onto the wing and come and get somebody, rescue them if, if, or drag them out, you know, dead. Were, were most prisoners armed? Were you armed? Well, I was I was armed. I believed everybody had a knife, and I thought uh, it was to my best uh, interest to always have a knife. And I never worried about the DR. I always hid my knife and tried to keep it away, but then at times if I got paranoid and I felt like a threat was to me, I would take it out from where I hid it. And how often did that occur where you felt like a threat was imminent? Um, When somebody was like, watching me i felt like okay this guy's watching me and i would walk on on the opposite side of the rail or the other side of the dorm and i would look back and he's standing over there watching me so i'd go over to another location and i look and he was standing there watching me on a if, if me and a guy had an altercation in a 
and uh, we ended up into a fist fight, okay? Um, I never really thought it was necessary to take the, take a knife out and do any bodily harm to anybody on a fist fight or anything because we're getting our understanding and our strength as men should. Uh, that's a mentality is that, okay, well, look, we got a problem. We're going to straighten it out. I'm going to beat you up. You're going to beat me up. Or we're just going to beat each other up and not say who won or who lost. But it's an understanding that you're not going to run over me. I'm not going to run over you. You know, an, an interesting observation to me is that you really weren't a career criminal. You were a small-time drug dealer, drug addict. Somebody was killed inadvertently during a, a drug deal. Yet, when you went to prison, you really were you accumulated 36 delinquency reports and you got involved in three riots where you're, you actually... you're you were a badass in prison uh, yeah, yeah well I, I built a reputation yeah. that I yeah. that to survive um, more or less uh, I've been in numerous fights um, I had some altercations with officers and um, you know caught a couple of assault cases on officers but um, participating in riots when when it was not really peer pressure, but it was so much chaos at the time, like at Sumner. Uh, Sumner County, when I first went to there, it was, a, it was a jet camp, youthful defender, and it was like everybody has something to prove to everybody, and it was gang-related. It was territorial. Tampa stood with Tampa. It didn't matter if you was really black or white. Spanish stayed with Spanish. Miami stayed with Miami. Jacksonville stayed with Jacksonville. But the thing is, is when these guys had their wars, I'll say wars because at times when officers got to come onto the compound, they use the tripod little uh, canister tear gas. They shoot out. They streamline these these uh, pepper gas. They'd be all over the compound. You'd be choking and gagging, and you know you can't see. You can't hardly breathe. They come out with the guns, and they're shooting whatever rubber bullets or or uh, pellets whatever they they seem that it's necessary to to stop what's going on to save somebody's life or to control the compound you you actually fought the same guy three times in one day right and and also and what was the actual i mean which is pretty amazing but you said you guys came to an understanding after we came to an understanding and uh what was the worst violence you ever witnessed in prison well it was uh when, it, when I first went to FSP and come off of CM for uh, participating in a riot, I came out of being in so- uh, solitary confinement for like a year and a half. Wow. And uh, a guy, was they were putting all of us in a um, TV room to bring us out on a CM2 gun squad. And there was like 32 of us that they were going to let out of CM and work us out on chain gang, out, you know, take us, shackle us, and put us out on the road uh, gang. And um, a guy named uh, Atterbury had an altercation with a guy named T, Nasty T, they called him. And he walked up and stuck a window rod right through his neck right here. And kill him? And when, when the officers come in there and they handcuffed him, they got him maybe 25 feet, and he fell he over. He fell dead. over? Yeah. Uh, worst day, 38 <clears throat> years of incarceration. Tell us about your worst day. My worst day. Um, 
you know that that is really hard is being separated from your family yeah and not having uh hope at the time and only trying to survive in prison would would say my worst day probably ran all together how did you and, survive 38 years in prison if you're talking about survival um, how did you survive 38 years really is spontaneously uh, under the influence of drugs and alcohol and just masking what the big picture was the the violence and all the uh, things like FSP I thought uh, it would have been great if they would have had on the back ramp a sign that says welcome to hell because that's what it felt like but but you know what more importantly than that you mentioned hope so how did you it seems like you got to prison you you had very little hope, but at some point in time, you developed that hope and saw, I guess, uh, you know, light at the end of the tunnel. How did that occur to you? For well, in um, between going to different institutions and surviving, like uh, you know, Sumner, FSP, UCI, and Charlotte, I ended up in Baker in 2002, and when I went to Baker. And I got off the bus. It was like, here's trees and here's plants. And and the environment looked pretty nice, right? And I would walk around on the compound. I'm more mingling with people. I knew a lot of people. And and they were saying, like, hey, uh, I'm glad you're here. You know, it's it's like we survived the worst. Right. Now you was at a good camp. And I thought it was one of the best camps that I ever been to at the time. But 1998 it seemed to be the big change in your life. From my perspective, you learned how to read and write for the very first time in your whole life. Uh-huh. And you were 38 years old. I was 38. I went to actually uh, Daniel Henderson right. was in the education department at Baker when I got there. And um, he said, what, do, what would you like to do while you're here? And I said, well, I'd like to try to get my education. And so he took me to the schoolhouse because he worked for the um, schoolmaster there, Mr. Howe. And Mr. Howe talked to me, gave me an interview, and he says, um, because you have a life sentence and a mandatory quarter, he says, I cannot en- enroll you in school because that's only for people that are only 21 and under and um, youthful offenders, people that only have five years and less. So... Um, I got into class in, I mean, uh, in the education department by being an orderly. But Mr. Howe said that you could utilize any classroom, any books, study in there, listen to the teacher and stuff. So I started applying myself because at that time, I really wanted some right. kind of change and better myself in life. And then you got your GED and you also got a bachelor's in biblical theology right. as Once well. I, what, wow. what, what was the best prison you were ever at? Baker? No, um, Polk, I would say Polk Correction was actually the best prison because it gave me more opportunity within my biblical studies. Uh, I, when I was at Baker and I applied myself in education and I got vocation, two vocational trades, my GED, and then um, I, I gave my life to Christ in 2002. In 2004, when I went to Polk, I had a desire to work in the chapel, and I got a job shortly after in the chapel for like a year and a half, and to really uh, come and understand 
being a servant to people and being in a den of lions at the same time. You know, how hard it was, a struggle. But um, I'd done what I thought would, would be sufficient to represent God. Is that what kind of when you got off drugs about that time? I, I had I had I've been clean for a while. Um, actually, 2002 to 2004 right. was uh, was the I mean uh, 2006 was four years that I ever been clean and and yeah. dr free. Now you were transferred from uh, I, I guess it was Polk into the ctp program at everglades correctional institution correct i went i went 2011 2011 i came to uh the ctp program with the mindset of of uh, applying myself and working towards getting out this was an opportunity i went i stepped into the the uh, florida parole commission elected to send me there to give me an opportunity to better myself right. and to become a productive citizen in society learn how right so you came in in 2011 in. that's when i met you at the at the gavel club and now at some point at some point you were allowed to write a letter to an advocate for the victim's family correct yes sir what did you say to the family uh, i told the family that there's no um you know to apologize to say i'm sorry would be so shallow but at the same extent, I am I am sorry, and I'm very remorseful for what happened. And even, um, you know, I took a life of a young lady. Uh, her name was Kathy, that never had the opportunity to grow up and be a mother or be a grandmother or, you know, a daughter to her family and sisters and brothers, whatever type of... Uh, right you know, woman that she was going to be. She never had that opportunity. And and through my uh, rehabilitation and understanding that the bottom line was not who I was to take a life of a person, but behind the drugs and the alcohol and the, the activities that I was in fell into that type of lifestyle. Did the family respond? It, they didn't respond at the time, but... In 2018, when I went in front of the parole commission, there was a letter that the sister had wrote on my behalf and took half the responsibility of what happened. Her sister wrote. Her wrote, yes. Well, you are clearly a much different person today than the 20-year-old who entered prison 38, you know, 41 years ago or 40 years ago at this point. How have you transitioned from that 20-year-old drug addict who spent 30 years in prison to the man you are today? Well, the, the, the only way that I could have is by my faith in God and, and praying to him to actually change my heart and give, take that stony heart away, change my mindset, to help me to understand, to help me to understand um, the love of him, of being a forgiveness, forgivable God, and that he manifests himself in the flesh and came to the earth and forgive me. And I had to understand that forgiveness to be able to say that, um, you know, I want to help others to understand. And I want to apply myself with respect 
and have integrity right. today in society right. and represent represent the person that I should have always been. But, but Robert, if, if you could stand in front of an audience with students and parents and teachers, what, what advice would you give them uh, to you know keep kids today from from not breaking the law or being with others who are breaking the law? You know, I I thought about that. Um, and it's, you know, you see crime here, you see the drugs here, and you see commercials that when I was a kid and it would say, just say no, just say no. And it's so easy to say no. But, you know, it takes a, a, a person that the definition to me, a man or a woman, is not to be up under the peer pressure to go along with the crowd but you don't have to be strong and fight, defend yourself. All you have to do is say no and not worry about how a person looks at you because you're doing what you're supposed to do. And that's not break the law. That's not get into the drugs or, or indulge in the alcohol to an extent that if you have a problem with it, then you shouldn't do it. If you can socially drink and be fine with it, then that's your choice. But you have to know right. your limit. Yeah, you I, have I, to know, and you have to make the right choices in life. And and it's easy to be up under peer pressure, and it's, it takes a lot more of a man or a woman to be sincere with their life and say, "Hey, I'm mm -hmm. just one bad choice of ruining my whole life." That's right, and that's not what I want. We're just all just no. one just bad decision no. from just incarceration. No. Work, work post-incarceration post work. Has it been hard to find? Is it, are you fulfilled? Do you have a great job now? What I is have, that like? I have a wonderful job. I started, I started off minimum of uh, $8.75 an hour selling tickets uh, four days after I got out through the help of Edward Dewitt and at, Shannon Cotero. At a drive-in movie theater. At drive-in movie theater. Right. And then um, I went to other ministries and I got help with uh, uh, programs and financial. And then they they set me up with an interview with Feeding Tampa Bay. I went to Feeding Tampa Bay and I was a convicted felon. And they didn't hire convicted felons, but they were interested in my story. Okay. And I shared my story and I, I took a folder portfolio of all my accomplishments, like 270-something certificates over the years that I have accomplished in other programs. And I said, this is who I am today. But the most important thing is that through my success, I know that I can open up doors for others to have the same opportunity that I have today by sitting here in front of you, and, and, and you've talked, and you've talked, yeah, and you've talked about that a few times. I mean, that obviously mm -hmm. is very important. To it you. is, it is. Well, Robert, you are great, a, Robert. an amazing guest. You're welcome here anytime. I'm taking all the credit for your great public speaking <laughs> from the Gavel Club, the Voices of Time Gavel Club at Everglades Correctional Institution. I owe it to you. you know, I, all kidding aside, Chris, all these guys that come in are like 
captivating speakers, and they, you know, you'd never know that they were in prison for every, thirty or forty years. Every so. other week for ten years, Robert would come to the gavel club and practice his public speaking. And I would say, it's, it's, contest, it's, get certificates. Hey, a table topic, maybe, maybe a table topic next time. Huh? <laughs> right. I always say, public speaking is not, you're not born with it; it's learned, practiced, and fine-tuned. Right. And you're a great example of that. And good luck with your motivational speaking business as well. Thank you. And also spreading the gospel because you're a great speaker. Keep it up. Thank Andy, you. Andy, final final comment before we wrap it up. He's an inspirational guy, mm-hmm. and he's changed his life, and and that's what that's what it's all about. That's what we want to see. We want to see these guys come out and and be pr- productive members of society. Clearly, Robert Scarborough is that, and he's helping others do it when they come out as agreed. well. Agreed. Agreed. Well, that does it for today. Thank you all so much for watching and listening. Special thanks to Lisa Hogan in Sarasota, Bob Scomars, and Paul Moyer in Long Island. Thank you all so much for letting us know you're enjoying the shows. Please join us next week, and if you like this show, please share it with your friends. And thank you all so much for watching and listening to Men Going Home.